being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones, is not a thing to celebrate. But it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and Other Delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane as always, wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Paul Burson to the show. Paul, or Pablo, as he is known to me and to many, joined the Vincentian community after high school and served for 10 years as a Roman Catholic priest in Los Angeles and Guatemala. From here, his life and spiritual ministry would transform as he found himself falling in love, marrying, and becoming a father. I met Pablo during this next phase of his journey, where he lived in the Dominican Republic and served as director of Creighton University's Semester Abroad program, guiding 15 or so college students each semester in a retreat setting of which I was very fortunate to be one. Pablo has worked for the last 15 years in higher education in the field of community-based service learning and continues his priesthood in the ecumenical Catholic communion. He also gave the before-meal blessing at my wedding and ripped it up on the dance floor with his wife Rosa afterward. He is a dear friend and influential teacher in my life, as he is to so many, and I am thrilled to have him on the phone today. Welcome to the show, Pablo. Thank you so much, Nicholas. It's great to talk to you and to uh, connect with you. Oh, Pablo. Man, the nature of this show is that I just want to talk to you about your life and get to know you and everything, but... I have this impulse to just want to sit and talk about the Dominican Republic and just put it on record about how influential that experience was for me. And you and I have shared this over the years many times, and I've been very fortunate to have you as a friend in my life, as I know so many other people that I went down there with are fortunate to have that experience with you and that relationship with you. But it was such such an impressionable time. And I, I do want to mention a couple of things just so the listeners kind of understand why that was such an impressionable time. I was 21 at the time. I was uh, the first semester of my senior year of college. And among all the other things that are so transformative about that experience, living amongst the very poor and growing close to them as families living in their homes, all the kind of education that you gave us down there, September 11th happened while we were down there on our particular trip. And so the bonding experience that already was going to be at such a high level was made even deeper because you and I and 15 to 16 other people were all in this retreat together for about four months. And September 11th happened right at the beginning of that semester. So I mention all of that just to kind of set the stage for what you represent in my life, such an important turning point in, in my early development. And I'm so excited to get to talk to you about your stages of development and your journey and where you are today, man. Very good. Well, I certainly have great memories of, of the DR. I think one of the things that, that always strikes me with your group in particular is that sense of um, vulnerability. I think that everyone comes into going to another land where most everyone doesn't speak Spanish as their first language and the struggle of that, but then being surrounded by beautiful Dominicans and Haitians and being so um, welcomed by them. And so loved by them in in service work as well as in homestays. That's like a key to this transformation. Then I think of you know the vulnerability that you all had with each other with 9/11, and then 
for my part, you know, my wife had recently come down with breast cancer and had to go up to the States for treatment. And our two little ones uh, eventually followed her up there to be with extended family. So I know I was feeling especially vulnerable during those times as well. So I think there was a number of things that came together that made that semester really impactful for all of us. Yeah, it's not that I forget about Rosa's cancer diagnosis and her treatment, but I forget that in all the other semesters, you had had your family there in your home with you. And then this was, I believe, the only semester, maybe one of two semesters, where then you didn't have your family around you at all. Like us, we were our only family. We were our, your right. only family during yeah. that time. No, for sure. That was um, something that made, I think, our, our experience special. And then, I don't know, you know, sometimes it's just the luck of the draw, but the group of people that came together in your specific semester was a, a beautiful group of, of young people that seemingly clicked in a lot of ways and deep ways. So you, you all were able to, to laugh so readily and then you're able to cry so readily. And, oh, man. And bet- between the two of them, I just think um, there was that good energy of um, learning in, in an atmosphere where so much joy and depth were part of that. Well, Pablo, I'm excited to get to dive in here. What did you have for breakfast this morning? What did I have for breakfast this morning? My regular breakfast is some almonds and uh like a protein drink. That's using my breakfast. That's why you look so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I a cup of coffee or two or three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I almost included in the introduction is you said you were defined by your role in ministry of accompaniment. I looked that up. It seems to be defined by walking alongside someone in a time of intense need. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I think so. And specifically during that time, it was war years that were going on in Guatemala. Tell you the truth, I was deeply blessed by a formation between with the Vincentians and also the Marinal sisters and brothers, a Catholic community of missionaries, really, that um, helped shape and form my way of being with people, especially outside the country. So in years past, just to kind of give you context, you know, probably with many religious groups and Christian groups, certainly Catholic groups, there's been a sense of um, going into a place and having all the right answers and coming to almost like a spiritual conquista, you know, a spiritual conquest, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. knowing it all, having it all, and and Father knows is in charge and telling everyone what to do, and they just follow him sort of obediently, and that's what a a good parishioner should be. But fortunately, through my training at that time in the history of the church, there were a lot of you know, transformations that um, Catholicism had been going, going through, at least uh, a big portion of it, especially in Latin America, which was much more about um, being with people and accompanying them. Certainly, I was doing what I would call sacramental circuit riding, which you know, around the different villages, maybe about um, 30 to 50, um, offering different sacraments of mass and baptisms and confirmations and weddings and and all that but it was so great being able to meet so many people you know i'd get into a, a canoe or drive a jeep to a certain place and then get on horseback and go out to places that maybe didn't have liturgy for a year and i just think especially some of the, the native um, folks that i met there the kekchi um, people mayan people that um were so welcoming and i got to chance to see their worldview and how they lived and how they worked together. And um, being with them, I still like, as I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm experiencing that sense of like, wow, 
what a grace to be able to be with people to help form me in my way of being in the world because they taught me about hospitality and they taught me about generosity and they taught me about just being real, you know, not putting on airs and having masks, but um, kind of saying what you think and doing what you need to do. And so I think all of that, you know, has been so formative for me as I've gone on to do other types of work over the years. All right. This is my own fault. I jumped right into the middle. It's beautiful to um, get started with you here, Pablo. Why don't I start where I normally start, which is how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Wow. I I grew up in a super Catholic family. So, you know, people probably would have thought my mom was a nun if they didn't know she had six kids Mm. the way she was. And my dad... I had the great fortune of meeting your mom, by the way. I don't know if you remember yeah. you when you were in L.A. once, probably 10 or 15 years ago now. We we, we hung out for a day, and, I, and you took me out to your home to meet your mother. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. it was really beautiful. I got I to see your home. That. Yeah, it was really lovely. Anyway, I interrupted you, yeah. so continue on. Yeah, so, um, and my dad, you know, he he grew up with, um, he went to, what's, I'll have to give you the story. He was... Uh, um, grew up in a small farming community in California. His dad was a Mason, and at that time, very kind of anti-Catholic. And, you know, my grandfather married a Catholic woman. So I guess to be married to, to her in the Catholic Church, he had to kind of agree that the children would be formed as uh, Catholics, right? So mm. so my dad eventually was so um, kind of filled with... Uh, a sense of religion and the goodness of it. It, it always was a, a big part of his life. Uh, my grandfather, he was the oldest of six on this farm, and he was told by his father um, his job was to, to be on the farm, even though my grandfather wanted to become a scientist. That was his big desire in life, was to become a scientist, and he couldn't. So when my dad was of age to go to college, my grandfather was going to make sure that he was able to realize his dreams. So off he went to Santa Clara University. And it was during the war year, so he was, you know, there were very few people there. at the, at the It was all males at the time at school. But he apparently loved it so much, this is my dad, that he, um, he was invited by the Jesuits to become um, a novice. Mm. And uh, years later, I found his, uh, the letter of acceptance in his prayer book after he had passed. So that when he went home to tell his mom and dad that he was going to become a Jesuit or that's what his plan was, his dad, being a Mason, he just said he was going to commit suicide. That my dad was going to go that route. Whoa. And it, you know, I think it, it was so. Um, you know, my, I think my dad ended up going on a retreat, went down to Mexico, um, kind of to do some discernment, and he decided he had met my mom along the way, and. Um, he decided that he, he was not going to pursue that route of um, becoming a Jesuit. So now I look back at this whole story and I'm like, where go, Gramps? <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> I'm here, yay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you don't often uh, laud that type of threat. <laughs> that's, that's not a threat that you look back on often and go, boy, he made the right move on that one. That's good parenting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's... There's a number of people very thankful for that <laughs> in, in retrospect, you know. So anyways, yeah, course, um, my dad having that, he, he never left that sort of inner sense. And I, when I see how he was in the world, you know, I think his way of being um, kind of 
a good Catholic man. And then, so for him, his best friend was a priest. You know, nuns and priests would come over to the house all the time. So for me, as a kid, the best thing I could possibly be was being uh, a priest, really, in the family. Or And if you were a female in the family, the best you could do is be a nun. So mm-hmm. I became, you know, eventually entered into the, the seminary to study for that. My sister studied to become a, a nun. So... But my sense of it early on was, I think, in Catholic ritual, we had great Irish priests in our parish, and there was a sense of the sacred and sense of um, the mystery of God in those ceremonies. I, you know, I remember First Communion. I remember so much time spent as going to parochial school and spending in church. But I ended up being an altar boy and then the head altar boy. So, you know, I was obviously early on was kind of attracted to the sense of something of God and then I you know that other part of it I'm sure that's the human part of like yeah here's something that would really get, give a lot of um, pleasure to my parents as well yeah well it's it's obviously strikes me something that's so on the surface of hearing that story is here's a father that inspired by his love of Jesus and Catholicism is considers becoming a priest which would mean foregoing uh, a marriage and a family, and we'll come to your journey more specifically. I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm talking to the son of that man who also began a journey of being a priest and foregoing the idea of family, marriage, fatherhood, and then turned back towards that himself. So it, to me, it, on a simplistic sense, feels like you followed in your father's footsteps even more than maybe uh, you ever intended. Um, I don't know. I'll be interested to know yeah, more, I, uh, how you feel about that as you're, as you tell me more about your journey. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's certainly things, and especially now as a dad, you know, I look at some things I'm doing, it's like, oh my gosh, I've turned into my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying the things he would say. <laughs> well, the things he did. <laughs> did you feel like your father's, you mentioned that obviously would have been, it was pleasing to your father to see you grow into the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. And did he, was he around when you got married? Oh, okay. So, um, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, how, but I just kind of want to know this. Sure. Right sure. And yeah, he, he was, um, so supportive of me in the seminary. And then, you know, I think there was a transition period that I'll talk about that it was difficult. Right. Right. Okay. Um, you know, so the, from the Catholic perspective, when, when I went to seminary when I was 14, so I went to a minor seminary. And, you know, our schedule was such we had morning prayers, we had we had mass every day, we had evening prayers, we had rosary time, we had night prayers. And that was, you know, for 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, it's for those, wow. you know, it was quite, quite the, the, a lot of praying going on, you know, for a young kid and your whole, your entire high school was spent in minors seminary. You were essentially getting your seminary training in high school. Yeah. Right. It was a minor seminary. So they don't really have many of those anymore because they realize it probably isn't the best for a lot of um, other types of development. But at the time, you know, there was a lot of good about it and a lot of, um, I have friends that I grew up with that became brothers that were still very, very close, you know? So you can imagine spending that amount of time with each other. And it was boarding school, so we were away from our families at that time. It was, you know, quite quite the type of community we had with our, sure. our classmates. And the school, 
you know, I graduated from high school with 12 people in my class. Wow. Um, so you could just tell, you know, from a small group of people how, how meaningful that was. And then for me, the, even though like as a freshman, I have to tell you, um, the dean, who was the dean of discipline um, for us, he eventually, you know, I started acting differently and he wanted to be called the dean of love. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. and, and, and it was like, so, so you know, what, what, what became, what happened to him? You know, there was just some transformation that went on with him. Anyways, at the, at the end of the, the year, somehow I received an invitation to go to a prayer meeting. You know, all our prayers for the most part uh, up to that point had been, you know, formal and, you know, reading Psalms and having mass and, you know, prayers that we'd be reading. That's what we were accustomed to. And then, you know, there was a retreat during the year where we were invited to do some like kind of shared prayers, like try to be able to be more spontaneous, kind of put a, a candle in, the, in our midst and, and sort of try to pray another way. But right after school was over, I was invited to go to this prayer meeting out in the community. And uh, I went to this house where people gathered, and I think one or two of my classmates were there, or schoolmates were there. People began to pray, and they prayed in ways I'd never heard before. This was, um, they were praying some of different languages, like, what is going on here? But there was so much joy, and there was like this power in the room that it wasn't something that turned me off, but rather really, really attracted me. And so um, at the end, they said, "Was does anyone here want to pray for the baptism of the Spirit? And I was like, don't even know what that is, but my hand just went up high, <laughs> a real wide way. And so I sat down in the chair, and they proceeded to surround me and place their hands on me. They began to pray that, you know, and this time, seriously, I was going through this whole thing about wanting to be in my first year. I was reading the lives of the saints a lot, and I was wondering, who becomes a saint anyways? Who's called to be a saint? Doesn't seem like there's that many compared to that I live, and and so I was hungering for this intimacy with God. Um, I thought that somehow this would uh, further that, but you know, as they finished praying, out, it was a wonderful experience. But I was kind of expecting maybe like the uh, like the, the lightning bolt to hit somehow, the spiritual lightning bolt to, right. to to do something. And and I just noticed it's like I I didn't experience that, but. Then the, I kept on going to this prayer meeting once a week, and the following weeks there was just like this deep desire for me to like read scripture, to read the Bible, and it was like wow, you know. And then I had to have wear a cross, and and then one day I just sat on my bed and I was praying like in this prayer language, and I was like, oh my gosh, and I get filled with lots of joy. So that was my introduction really to what was eventually called the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, you know, connected to the kind of Pentecostal experience of a lot of. Churches. Yes, thank you. I was. I've had a little bit of an through this show. Have been introduced to a couple of people that have had the Pentecostal experience, and I was beginning to feel that familiar that sort of similarity there. And I don't think I, if I knew this about your past, I had forgotten it. So you, when you say you're a freshman, you're 14 or 15 going through this experience. Yeah, four. Yeah, 15. Uh huh. And so you're you're right at the beginning of your formal training, but you're also having this thing on the side, which is which is also connected to your formal training because you were introduced to it sort of through your formal training, but it's this thing that's outside your formal training also. Sure, sure. And then we, so I, all during my, my seminary years that we had uh, prayer meetings or prayer groups, you know, that, that we had either in the seminary or we'd go off to other places in the community and then eventually go into conferences and we're, you know, exposed to a lot of um, 
great teaching. And I just remember one, one of the people that a name you might recognize is Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest. He continues to be a mentor, but he's, he had some powerful experiences himself. And, um, Later on, I'll share you with, with a fellow who now is our, our bishop, but I got to know him during my college years, who was also very much involved in the charismatic renewal. Wow. Um, that's something that sort of brought, I guess I would say, like this personal experience of God, you know, where there was a sense of of um, deep peace or joy or uh, um, excitement in prayer where some people, you know, it's just like a formal thing you're doing, and it's it sometimes doesn't have much joy to it. It's something you got to do out of out of a commitment, or you feel like an obligation. But what happened to us? It made all like all the sacraments just kind of come alive. And... So, was the dean of love the person that <laughs> is he the person that discovered this Catholic charismatic renewal and then started bringing some of these some of you and your other fellow students to it? Is that how that worked? Yeah, in the seminar for sure. He started calling himself the Dean of Love after having had this experience with the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, and then, wow. and then it was shortly after that he moved on somewhere else to another another place. And uh, we just continued on, you know, um, amongst ourselves. We, we kind of formed our own prayer group. You know, religious authorities in a lot of kind of more traditional-based churches look at some of the charismatic stuff as just... Sometimes it seems a little <laughs> out of the comfort zone. That's the way I put it. You yeah. know, there's, and, and I, I could understand that. So, I, you know, no judgment there. It's just if you haven't experienced some of stuff, it just doesn't seem like it's, it's um, for you, you know. Would you say that you're still influenced today by the Catholic Charismatic oh. Renewal? Oh, for sure. Yeah, like you sure. didn't leave yeah, it still, at yeah, some I, point, or it's just something that yeah, you no, experienced and you carry on in your in your yeah, mission. The, yeah, the transformation of kind of that invitation to deeper relationship with Jesus. And then I'll find to share with you later on just how the outward eventually led to the inward journey. So that's it could be another topic. Yes, line, that's to perfect. And in fact, Pablo, I mean, this one's going to be hard for me. We're already at the end of the first segment and there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but that's a good place to leave it. And we'll be back okay. right after the break. Okay, very good, bye. Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners, and it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. All right, everybody, we're back with Pablo. I was talking to him off mic about how to truncate this beautiful story of which I want to know everything about, and I feel like it has so much to say about a spiritual life. One thing I'm going to do here is just sort of ramp his story forward 10, 12 years. He goes through seminary, then to major seminary, which is essentially grad school for the priesthood. And at 27, you are ordained. I want to just kind of get us to that point because there was something that Pablo wanted to speak specifically about how his spirituality began to evolve and grow as a part of your inner spiritual life. So please jump off from that point, Pablo. Sure. When I was in the college seminary in Perryville, Missouri, in my senior year, so I would have been the age that you would have been when you met me, there was a, 
a priest that came um, from Gethsemane, uh, the Trappist Monastery in Kentucky, mm. and uh, by the name of Tom Nelson. And he had that sort of glow about him that uh, he had somehow, you know, been up to the spiritual mountains. And and at that time, and a lot of us, even though, you know, we had had our prayer meeting and you know, former prayer, we were starting to be fascinated with this idea of contemplative spirituality and an inner life and developing one's inner life, right? And experiencing God in, in silence and trying to imagine what it was like for him. And anyways, we asked him to, to teach us about uh, contemplative prayer and the mystical life. And so he taught us about John of the Cross and he taught us about Thomas Merton, who was one of the famous monks there at Gethsemane. Eventually, a group of us decided to make a hermitage in the woods. So, so there was an old um, mill um, out in the woods, part of the seminary property, and we went out there and we turned the old mill into a hermitage. And it was, uh, you know, uh, months in the making, but we took the foundation stones to turn that into a, a place of prayer that we we can go to, um, kind of be away from all the formal types of prayer and all the busyness of school and kind of service in the community, but to be able to go to a place and be quiet in nature and somehow try to listen to the deep, uh, silent voice of God. So that that was a big place for me of um, another turn in my spiritual journey, moving from, in some ways, uh, all the outward prayer was good, but it was moving me and others into uh, um, an invitation to, to contemplative prayer. Wow, that's really beautiful. Yeah, so. I, it feels, again... It's beautiful to be speaking to you. And some of the things that are coming to me are some of the ways that I've experienced your spiritual guidance, especially when I was younger, when we were in the Dominican Republic. But even as I have grown over the years, the laying of hands, some of the prayers that we have, the laying of hands is something that physical contact of a hand on a head or a hand on a shoulder, the hand on the head in particular is this really powerful, it's such a powerful physical manifestation of a prayer. I feel like that's something I, I'm i hearing as something that might have been brought into your spiritual toolkit during your Catholic charismatic renewal time. Now no, you have this sure. retreat setting, right? That you, I didn't even know that Thomas Merton's Trappist hermitage was in Kentucky. I didn't realize that. And that you had spent time there is really cool and makes a lot of sense. Anyway, it's it's really cool to hear about that. So that's where you kind of learned I mean, essentially your entire formal education was all in a retreat setting, right? I mean, you were basically in a retreat from the age of 14 to the age of 27, (laughs) hanging out with like 11 other people (laughs) for 13 years, you know? There were other people in the seminary and, you know, we had school and everything, but maybe maybe it could feel that way at different times for some people that would be like retreat. And the other thing I wanted to say is that I was so formed by the beautiful people that I was with, be it either priests and brothers and fellow seminarians that became friends, lifelong friends that transformed me in my experience of God. You know, I can't imagine them not being a part of that. Um, so as my own family, you know, that I grew up with, there's just a sense of like, the older I get, the, the more I look back and say like, Wow, God is everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't recognize it. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. Okay. So you have this beautiful transformative experience with your brothers in the mill and the retreat and the importance of sitting with God out in nature and in silence. 
And then what's the next life experience you want to get into? You know, right after I was ordained, I went down to Mexico to learn Spanish because I didn't didn't know Spanish at all. As a matter of fact, I mean, um, my whole plan to be a missionary was to go to Africa, and that was my hope. And I learned some French up in Quebec and had a tutor in Los Angeles. And that's where I was heading towards. And I really found this language, French language, really beautiful. And when my community said, you know what, there's a lot of trouble right now with the church and the state, and it's too hard to get a visa to go there. So what do you say about going to... um, Guatemala. <laughs> I was like, oh, shoot, they don't speak French in Guatemala. <laughs> and then, you know, I grew up in Southern California and I had a certain prejudice towards not Mexican Americans because they were my friends, but people that I met, you know, in different places that came right from Mexico, usually probably field workers or people that were day laborers. It, they just kind of scared me, right? I, had, I knew mm-hmm. I, had, I didn't know I had a prejudice, but I. I did, right? Um, so I was sent down to Mexico to learn Spanish, and I was the only one in the language school at the time, and I spent three months there, and it was a time of the big earthquake back in 1985 that just decimated so much of Mexico City, mm. and I was just right outside the city in a place called Cuernavaca, but I lived with families, and something just shifted in me, and then I went back to Los Angeles, and I worked with... Um, a lot of immigrant communities, uh, immigrants from be it El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, people that had been fleeing the violence, as well as a lot of Mexicans were part of the parish. It was St. Vincent de Paul Parish in downtown Los Angeles at Adams and Figueroa. I was just really blessed by having um, between the, the pastor there, Phil Vemmen, and the, the huge staff that was there that were really um, involved with helping refugees at the time, but being kind of pulled into that whole world of the Spanish-speaking world. And I was sent to this parish because it was, you know, meant to be preparation for going to Guatemala. So wow. during my time there, as I was all ready to go to Guatemala, <laughs> you know, I met different people and I had met uh, Rosa's family and this is my future wife and her, her dad was the choir master and their choir was just spectacular. So we hit up a friendship and there were some sparks flying, but it was like, I'm going to Guatemala. <laughs> so maybe keep our, our friendship alive through letter and maybe phone call every now and again. But it was like recognizing the sparks, but knowing that it, um, you know, couldn't go anywhere in my mind. I was, you know, I was proud. I was uh, so increased. This couldn't be anything but a friendship. So, so I was going down in Guatemala and then, you know, being there, it's another transformation, I think, just took place where I've been asking the big questions. <laughs> like, so there's 500 years of evangelization going on here in Latin America, but why are there like Guatemalans like priests doing this? Why are there so many of us as missionaries, right? And a lot of the kings I went to, it's like that being a celibate priest, just being a priest would have been fine, but being a celibate just wasn't part of the culture or an idea that would have flown too well with the uh, with folks, right? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I've been asking the questions. And then in the middle of that, my best friend, uh, Don Ricard, he, he just um, was going some serious soul searching and he realized as much as he loved being a priest and he was, um, we went to seminary together, he, he found that he just had to, he had to get married because it was the loneliness was killing him. So when he left, all of a sudden what happened to me is I, I started, I, I went to this, this place of um, of asking some questions because he, he was a fellow that 
I saw as a Renaissance man, I still see that as so good in so many ways. And yet, because he wanted to be married, you know, the church said, sorry, you can't be a part of us anymore as far as a professional minister like this. And and it was like, what? (laughs) You know, it's like when you realize something takes place with someone so close to you, then it it forced me to to ask questions that probably had been in the back of my mind, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that, that that would sort of begin, you know, day after day I wake up and just thinking like, wow, what happened? And but eventually, you know, after three years, I, I decided to take a year leave of absence and really to discern this. Because I, I began, you know, thinking like maybe I'm called uh, similar to him. And, and as much as it was great being with the people in Guatemala, it was, there was a loneliness about it because I would travel to places, come back and travel here and there and everywhere. But didn't have like a really close circle of, you know, friends that filled up my um, inner life, you know, of um, being able to, to feel alive um, but with friendship, you know? Yeah, um, of course. It must be so galvanizing and inspiring to feel like you are always in a sense of discovery and you are taking in so much of the world, so many people, you're being met with such warmth because of what you're bringing and what you represent. But yeah, it must be very lonely <laughs> to carry that. Yeah, it was, it was difficult. And um, so anyways, coming back, it was like, I felt like I had, I've played so many years into this. I didn't want to just like follow my, my buddy's path without really discerning well. So I, I went back and I thought I discerned things really well. And I was like, I'm, I'm staying. And my, my friendship with Rosa continued. Um, one of the things that began to happen is I think being in Latin America it just sort of broke open some things in my inner life. And I eventually led me to some good counseling. And it led me to eventually look at issues that took place way back when I was a young seminarian, like a freshman, and, and I was uh, abused by one of the, the priests there. Oh, no. Um, and yeah, and, and that, that abuse, I think in part, you know, led me to kind of shut down and my, um, if you will, my psychosexual life was like, you know, we're just going to, you know, stamp all this down and, and, um, yeah, so I think there were, there was a number of things that, um, that I had to eventually work through and find healing and, come around to to a place of saying like, I think, which I did, I came around to saying, I, I think if I was probably in a much more healthier inner life in the seminar, I would have come around to saying before I finished, I feel called to be a priest and I feel called to be married. Mm. <laughs> but the seminary at the time was like, if you're going to be dating anybody, that meant you shouldn't have been to seminary. So, right. you know, I didn't really, <laughs> that was, that was another thing that was like, let's keep, let's keep them <laughs> safe oh. from any of the attractions as long as we possibly can. And then you're out in the world and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, <laughs> there, there's, there's women in the world. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're never allowed to see them for 13 years. <laughs> or, well, or it's not quite that, that much. Uh, right? Yeah, to be involved in relationship, you know. So, yeah. so you know, I'm um, I'm certainly thankful for the healing that took place. But you know, eventually led me to um, to deeper relationship with Rosa Maria, and again, 
you know, my discernment went on for a number of years, I have to say. Um, and, and a long time, it was very, very painful where I was thinking, do I, do I cut off the, the right leg or do I cut off yeah. the left leg? And, and the, the, you know, one was like, do I let go of her in this, this developing relationship or do I cut this other leg that felt like this call to be a priest? And I was, I was serious. I was stuck, but I continued to minister. I went back and forth to Guatemala. I was doing parish missions, and um, I helped form what was called the Detention Service Corps in Los Angeles. So there was some um, good things that went on. But I eventually took another time out and went to Denver for a longer period of time to kind of shake this loose. And in shaking this loose, I. I kept on praying intense prayers like god make this clear for me. Yeah. <laughs> what do i do what do i do and and finally a, a good sister friend of mine told me that her sister had gotten married and there was a, a catholic priest who was married who had the ceremony you, you should go talk to him so i thought wow. oh my gosh so i did and eventually it led me to meet a number of people that were kind of in a independent catholic church and uh their priests were married so that sort of opened the door for me where it didn't have to be cutting the right leg off or the left. It was somehow it was meant to continue with both. And so with that, I eventually proposed to Rosa Maria. And, um, wow. and uh, we, we got married and spent our honeymoon down in Mexico. So she's from Mexico. And, is she um, from El DFA? Is she from Mexico City? Or? You know, she's from the Ciudad de Juarez. Okay. And um, what would I say? I think that's one of the things, you know, people say, are you Paul? Are you Pablo? And I'm like, well... <laughs> between the people in Guatemala and um, my wife, who always calls me Pablo, um, and eventually working in the DR where I was in with Pablo, I'm like, uh, well, I'm kind of both, but um, I sort of identify as Pablo. But uh, you know, some people yeah. are like, what? How is it? How is this possible? So, and and that was you know being married, and there were so many ways that that was you know confirmed. Like I'm on the right path. <laughs> it took me a long time, buddy. This is a long time <laughs> trying to figure this one out. How old were you when you finally married? Um, I, 38. Wow. 38. And you would have yeah. met her when you 30. were around 29 or something? Um, I would have met her like I was around 29, I think. Yeah. Wow, man. Initially, yeah. Well, Pablo, first of all, I don't, I don't want to belabor this. That's not what this show is about. But I am obviously shocked to hear about the horrible experience that you had to re-engage with. It sounds like it's one of those things that you, I guess I'm, I'm, I guess I do want to ask the question, which is, do you feel like you didn't, was it one of those things that was so repressed you did not think about it until many years later? That, that experience yeah, that you I had? Yeah, I pushed it way, yeah, I pushed it way down, way down, you know, which happens to most, yes. you know, children who've been abused is that you just push it down and it doesn't eventually make its way out for healing wow. for a while, you know, and, you know, I look back on my life and certainly I'm not thankful for that. But, you know, I know that I, I didn't do well in, in Spanish in high school. I got D's and F's. Mm. <laughs> that was not my life. It was my skill set. Mm. Um, so I know if I didn't go to Guatemala and uh, go to Mexico and Guatemala to learn Spanish, I never would have met Rosa Maria. And then, you know, we have these, you know, beautiful children that this incredible gift. I never thought of having kids you know, all those years of being a priest. I enjoyed being around kids. I enjoyed, um, there was a couple orphanages down in Guatemala and, and El Salvador that I've met some beautiful kids and was able to be like a, a father figure for 
for kids in that um, one of the orphanages. But I never thought of having my own kids. And then when I have them, now I can't imagine not having kids. Like, oh, oh my gosh, yeah. what an incredible gift um, Rosie and Lucia and Gabriel have been in my life. So, you know, I can't imagine life without them and all that they've been for me and teaching me and and brought from me. So I'm, I'm just very thankful. Then I look back at the the, the weaving of my my life. You know, I'm, I look at this... Uh, one of my favorite pictures of God is that in Guatemala, I went inside a, a young woman's um, weaving. I feel like, you know, God's been weaving my life, but it's like, my, oh my, I didn't know all these colors would be a part of it. <laughs> Pablo, it's an yeah. extraordinary story. I, I feel like yeah. I just want to sit, it, again, it doesn't surprise me. I want to talk to you for hours and hours and hours. But we've once again reached this point where we have another break and we have just one more segment. So you and I will get to talk about what we're going to talk about in that last segment. All right, so we'll be back in just a little bit. By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Okay, everybody, we're back with Pablo. One last segment. So, Pablo, one thing that we have to get back to was you referenced that you had some struggles with your relationship with your father, or maybe your father had struggles adapting to your your change of life when, I think, when you were referencing when you fell in love and decided to leave the priesthood? Right, yeah. So it was, it was very, very difficult for my, my dad, as you can imagine. I think it's weird to think that I was like his greatest source, perhaps, of um, of pride, you know, and not, not in a bad way, but he's proud of me, right? And then I was probably like his greatest source of embarrassment. Dang, you know? Wow. Um, but so that that was that was difficult. And for a long time, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't didn't feel like I could bring, when I was visiting from the DR, my wife to the house because of that. And I remember, you know, so I'd meet with him at a restaurant in a neutral zone, and I remember... Um, sharing the picture of the sonogram of my, my daughter in womb, you know, and I, I, I had the great news to share with them, my parents about this, right? And and I put it out there to show them and they didn't say a word. I was like, oh. Wow. So, but oh, over time, they eventually, you know, came around and fortunately for my dad passed away, we were on good terms and sometime I'll, I'll share with you a, a post-death visit, <laughs> you know, that really brought me a way to experience maybe some things I didn't experience in his life. So kind of an experience of him delighting in me. Honestly, if you want to tell that story now, do you not want to tell that story now? I mean... Well, sure, I could share that with you. But so so fortunately, you know, in the the last year, I think he came around to... to accepting Rosa Maria and my children. And it's, it's just interesting is my dad got really into genealogy at the end of his life. And even though I have six siblings, there's only one that will carry on with his last name, which is my son. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, so it's how it's ironic kind of, um, the poetry yeah, how that is that extraordinary. I mean, I'm, yeah, not to belabor this, but I mean, the fact that your father had an impulse to be a priest. And then the relationship with his father, the pressure from his own father, led him to start a family. And then he gets to have the priest vicariously through his son. But then his son 
ends up deciding to become a father. And then you have this other thing about the genealogy. <laughs> I mean, it's like, life is so extraordinary. You know, it's just so yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, the stories, no, we all have these just extraordinarily compelling stories. And these story, this story is, I understand. I don't want to make light. I understand that it's full of pain and you're a, a spiritual guide, a healing guide. So you're, you're, it's not lost on you what this all is, but, and you're going to tell a story of healing here, but it's, my mind yeah. as the listener here is just in awe at the poetry of it all. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for seeing that. And I appreciate that. Yeah. So one of the things after he passed, it wasn't maybe a couple of weeks and his funeral was so beautiful. Um, I was, I was able to preach at it. Oh, wow. That's, that's and, lovely. Uh, yeah. Which was, was a nice um, invitation to be able to do that. And one night I just remember having like this vivid dream and it was like my dad's face. It's like he had this rainbow face. I don't know how to put it. It radiant. And he was mm. looking at me from the side. It was like a side view and he was admiring me. Like he was delighting in me. Mm. And, and that was one of those things I didn't really experience that much with my dad in his life. <laughs> but, but I did, I did experience, you know, and I felt like it was a gift that came from beyond, you know, of, you know, now that he knew me, maybe in ways that he didn't know me before or couldn't appreciate or wasn't able to. But, you know, I, I take that with me, you know, that um, that he delights me now. So so that's good. Anyway, so I, so coming back to that, you know, I, I wish he could have lived longer so I could have been as thankful as I, uh, he could have heard how thankful I am now of all that he was as a father and same with my mom as a mother, all that they gave me because I didn't really appreciate that to the extent that I do now because I am a dad, right? And right. I could see all the sacrifices and all that went on all these years. It's like, oh my God, my dad, when I was in seminary, he sent me a card every week. Can you oh, imagine wow. just telling wow. what's going on? Yeah, so I have bags like i didn't i can't throw them out because they're my dad beautiful writing and it's all symbol of like his support and love for me right and um every week for 97 years in the seminary sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's just that your time in the seminary is so long yeah. <laughs> that's extraordinary that's hundreds and hundreds of letters yeah yeah wow. i do and then and then i think about um you know my spirituality has has continued, I believe, grow, evolve, transform. But one of the things in scriptures in the, the New Testament, you know, Jesus is constantly talking about Allah, you know, God being dad or daddy, you know, there's that sense of intimacy and and the story that many people hear of the prodigal son or the or the father, the loving father who receives them. There's a sense like that has grown more and more about who God is for us. And so the church that I'm connected with right now, it's called Church of the Beloved. It's our, our parish and beloved being Jesus, but also who we're all called to be. Um, so my spirituality, it's, like, it's gotten bigger and wider. And it's like, I can't imagine it. In our, in our church, we believe everyone's welcome. Everyone? Yeah. You want to come to communion? Everybody comes to communion. <laughs> um, it's probably, uh, if you'd walk into the church, you'd feel like you're in a Catholic church, but then you'd maybe, you know, look around and see that, uh, oh, he's married. <laughs> that priest is married. Uh, mm. You know, the, the pastor is a woman. Oh, um, there's an openness to people who are and have been kind of expelled or not felt welcome in uh, the traditional Catholic Church because of 
of uh, their sexual orientation. So, mm. Is this connected to the church? Because you're in Denver now. Is this connected to the yeah. church that you first experienced that helped you come to a sense of healing that you could be both a priest? When you, um, took, when you took your sort of quote-unquote sabbatical yeah. or whatever to Denver, is that connected to that? It grew into that. Because it's it's not that old, but it was just a group of independent priests that eventually became part of this. Right now, it's organized, and and then eventually, as it grew and became um, what it is today, the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, it's a it's a sense of wideness and openness and depth that I feel like really honors where I come from. So I, you know, I, I honor my Roman Catholic roots. And I still feel like I'm connected to them. You know, I. I am very appreciative of, of so much I've received. Also, I'm, I'm appreciative where I am now and the, the group of people that I'm connected with and the sense of spirituality that has that breadth and depth and welcome and wideness. That, so as, as I get older, Nicholas, I just I, I feel like I'm, I'm seeing patterns around the world. And as a father, you know, that and understanding Jesus' love for his father and his his father's love for him, that sense of who God is, it's, um, I can't imagine anyone being excluded mm. um, from that love, you know? And so I just want to share with this, this little, and if it's helpful to, to close your eyes to hear these words. So they're, they come from a, um, a book by Life of the Blood by Henry Nowen. And he puts these scripture verses together and adds a little bit of his own. So, it goes, uh, listening to that voice with great inner attentiveness, I hear at my center words that say, I have called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved and you my favor rests. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have carved you in the palms of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with a care more intimate than that of a mother for her child. I have counted every hair on your head and guided you at every step. Wherever you go, I go with you. And wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You know me as your own, as I know you as my own. You belong to me, and I am your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your lover, and your spouse. Yes, even your child. Wherever you are, I will be. Nothing will ever separate us. We are one. That's beautiful, Pablo. Okay, talk to me about why you wanted to read that, why you want to share it. And I want to begin talking more about what you feel called to do today you know where are you at in your journey of being called right okay yeah um 
so I, I read that because my my sense of kind of boiling down my spirituality relationship with God, and as I see it, it's not supposed to be just me and God, right? It's supposed to be me and God and me and you and God and everyone with God. So I have a sense of interconnectedness and a sense of really if we're all seeing each other as the beloved, right? And if God sees each of us as a beloved, then it's calling us to to see a unity that's present that oftentimes, I think sometimes religion gets in the way of, right? But if you get deep, deep down, people begin to recognize how connected we are. I, my spirituality has always been laced also with um, creation. Uh, you know, I'm a, a disciple of St. Francis of Assisi. I feel like somehow my spirituality over the years has just um, always appreciated the beauty of creation. And as we as a world, you know, especially during this pandemic, um, maybe get the opportunity to have a reset and really listen deeply about how we are, not only with one another, but how we are with Mother Earth. I think there's an opportunity and a crying need to change our relationship from being those of us who um, just sort of take and use to um, appreciate and share, right? And as far as what I'm feeling called to um, nowadays, I think to, to share that message, it's like, we're called to be able to, to respect each other, to see each other, to deeply care for one another and all of Earth, right? All of Earth. So how do how do we do that and do it in the urgent ways that I think we have to now? I, I think there's just a, the time of all of the scientists have said, you know, there's some irrevocable damage that will take place if we don't put the brakes on. And I think we need to figure out how to invent the brakes. How do we we see ourselves and act with one another and act with the world. Yeah, and so I, th- I think that message continues to to reverberate within me. And how do how do I come to that deeper place? You know, I just feel like I'm sinking deeper into that. I need to hear more how much I'm the beloved. I, if we all recognize, I really it's like, oh my gosh, I am the blood of God. Uh, I would think that it would fill us with the deep sense of gratitude and a sense of connectedness to all that is and the mystery that is, right? I've always seen kind of my priesthood as being an invitation to be a bridge and kind of be a spark or a a flame is um, just an invitation for all of us to be that for each other and especially that for those who are in the margins. We didn't speak a whole lot about that, but a lot of the people I've been able to meet and that have shown me the face of God have been people who live on the margins that people here would call poor, but I'd say people that are experiencing poverty, experiencing being marginalized, either in, the Gu- in Guatemala and El Salvador and the Dominican Republic or here in the United States, people on the streets. Um, there's a, a, an opportunity to uh, experience God through connectedness with people who are on the margin. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so then with my last question, Pablo, what makes you despair and what gives you hope? So 
So a story, uh, every year I go down to El Salvador with a group of students from our Romero House program, and uh, we get to a place of massacre. It's called the Copapaya Massacre. And I hear the story of um, two people, Rogelio and Mercedes, who who share um, what it was like growing up in that village. And, and Rogelio, who as a 10-year-old boy, just about 10, um, survived two massacres. And he shares a story when you hear just about, you know, hundreds of women and children, elderly being mowed down, killed and tortured. It's, it's heavy. Um, he... Usually, we take a boat to the place of of this uh, massacre, and there's all sorts of of water lilies that cover a lot of the lake. And a lot of times, we're never able to get very close to the actual site. We just say a prayer there in silence. And one of the times, a couple of years ago, we got right up to the very shore, and Rogeli jumped out of the boat, and I asked him if he could bring a, a stone for me for my prayer uh, altar, right? And so I was thinking that he'd come back with a little, like a pebble type, you know, and he came back with like a 10 pound stone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I have this and I brought it with me and I looked and it's got like, it's got blood on it. It's wow. like the remnants of blood from this massacre on it. So it's on my prayer altar. In fact, I'm holding it right now as I'm talking and it's heavy and the, it represents for me the heaviness of history that. You know, I'm a student of history, and you know, in the century I was born in, you know, you had World War One, and you had World War Two, you had the horrible things that have taken place in countries where mass executions took place. We have Vietnam, we have so many things that I, I look back on, on our history, and, and nowadays we're even, you know, fortunately being able to see, like, able to see more clearly what what on earth did we do with this, you know, massacring of native peoples and what was this all about and the enslavement of people from africa and all the all of that the heaviness of history sometimes just is so much and i wonder like you know how do we get out from under this mm-hmm. heaviness and um and then i think of rogelio and he's got this beautiful daughter that sometimes accompanies them and and there's a sense of like lightness it's like life goes on and um I know people that are part of the Catholic work community. Um, I want to think of Sister Anne in particular. And she um, is filled with joy. And she's been with people on the margins and has protested major craziness of the U.S. military involvement over the years and uh, nuclear buildups. And and she's filled with joy. And she has hope. It's like, how is that possible? (laughs) And so I find hanging around people... And being with people that uh, recognize the past, but also are somehow centered in this mystery of, I want to say, the divine, the, the messy creation that won't allow us when we're together and we're centered to, to, to go into despair, pull us out of despair, enables us to live in the world and try to push and pull the world towards a better place. Yeah, so I find. My hope is being with um, people and being with my grandkids, being with people who are who really see the possibilities of life going on. I feel like as a dad and as um, a grandfather, I don't have um, a place for for despair because <laughs> I want it to be good for them. It's like mm-hmm. I can't I can't go down that path. It's like no, no, no. 
So anyways, that's, um, that's my thoughts now. So, Oh, Pablo. Man, yeah. I love you. Yeah, I love you, brother. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Um, oh, yeah, just give me a text of when you'd like to debrief, and uh, I'd love to. But, uh, you know, it's been a privilege, and hopefully this will be helpful for people who are, who are your listeners are, you know. All right, man. Yeah, I hope so, too. I think it will be very beautiful. It was beautiful for me. Okay. Give me best right. to Andrew, okay? Okay, I will, man. And uh, thank you all for listening. A number of years ago, I was visiting my daughter's house and across the street, uh, a fellow who's an artist was uh, in a state cell and I was going through these different things and what struck me was a bust and it's a um, heavy, heavy bust and it's got a, like a face that's suffering and um, and I asked him about them. I said, I'm interested in this, but... Um, uh, is there a story behind it? And he said, there is, but it's, it's a dark story. I don't know if you want to hear it. And I said, I said sure. Um, and he went ahead and told me that um, at the bust is of his best friend who was going through a difficult, difficult time and ended up ending his life through suicide. So yeah. as part of his kind of therapy working through that, he he took the, the gun and other gun materials. I mean, he melted them all down and he made this bust and he made a beautiful table and he gave it to his best friend's father. Oh my goodness. And um, so that, that, that stayed in the father's house for a while. Um, and I, I asked him, so how is it back here? And the father said, I can't, it's too hard for me to look at that anymore. And so I said, well, well, how about you? You're selling it now. How uh, this is like your best friend says, yeah, it's it's too hard for me to um, to look at it either. So I said, I tell you what, I will, I'll buy it. But you know what? How you could always get in touch with me if you ever want this back. You know, just knock on my daughter's door. We'll get this back to you, right? Because I'm sure it means a lot to you. But over the years, I mean, it weighs I don't know seventy pounds um, because it's this, this whatever the metal grade that's used for iron steel but for guns um and i i use it at different times when you know one's just to carry that the weight of that it's just so heavy and i do this dynamic with my students sometimes i have one of them carry it and they're just like it's too much and then i invite everyone to carry it and it's like okay we could do this just a sense that sometimes there's burdens that are too heavy for ourselves but if we're doing it we're carrying community there's something about being able to carry stuff in community that, that that's where we're supposed to carry things, I believe, you know, generally, you know, sometimes not, but a lot of times, you know, the way it makes something bearable. So anyways, that's the story about this bus. So it's in my chapel. And the reason it was also, it was in the back of my car for a long time because nobody, um, <laughs> my wife was like, you're going to put this <laughs> in the house, you know? Because <laughs> it's like, there's a story behind it, right? Now I was trying to think, well, maybe it's a place, you know, I work. And, and I was like, okay, God can handle this, right? God can handle this too. <laughs> so it's an example. Wow. So it me that to think of him and other people who obviously um, are in, in such sorts that it's life is very painful, you know, mentally and other ways. Oh, that's beautiful, Pablo. <laughs> <laughs>